Would you open God's precious holy word to the gospel of John chapter 13? We've come to chapter 13 and verse 1. We'll try to cover about half the chapter today. And from that passage, I want to bring you a message that I call the master who serves. Jesus here is about 12 hours from the cross. This is the event, this is the the scene of the Lord's Supper. John doesn't write it like the other synoptic gospel writers write it. We can take certain things from what the other gospel writers say, but John gives us yet still another perspective. And the perspective is given so that we will see even more about our Lord Christ. To understand Him and His relationship with us. The Master who serves. Now, this is the Um, event of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Why Why did Jesus do this? He's teaching his disciples about himself. If we, if we understand, if we can understand more and more of Christ, we actually will understand more and more of ourselves in that. And so we're going to look at in the next couple of verses or so, we're going to look at six reasons why Jesus washed his disciples' feet. So let's get right into it. John chapter 13, beginning in verse one. Now before the feast of the Passover, so they're there assembled in the room. Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, first reason he did it, Jesus, knowing that his hour that he would depart out of this world to the Father, had come. Well, this is it. You can read the gospel accounts and there were several occasions in which Jesus said to those, my hour has not yet come. Specifically and especially to his mother with his first miracle in Cana of Galilee at the wedding. Then there were other times where any one of us would have been captured by those who were conspiring against us, but Jesus just moved from their midst and they, their minds were confused or their eyes were blinded to certain things, but he did not submit to the conspiracy to kill him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus, number one, washes their feet because he knows his hour has come. He's he's like 12 hours from the cross. Something very difficult, and that's probably not a harsh enough word, something very horrific 
something epic, something cataclysmic is going to happen. And it will shake his disciples. And they really won't understand all of it. They won't understand all of it until after his resurrection. And we have to remind ourselves that after his resurrection, he spent 40 days before he ascended into heaven teaching his disciples. So after his resurrection, then the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies and the the, uh, marching orders for the disciples became very clear and evident. Still not completely clear because in Acts chapter one, you know, they still said, well, now that you're resurrected, is this the time you will, you will set up the kingdom? You will establish the kingdom in Jerusalem. Of course, he still hasn't done that. It's been a while, hasn't it, since uh, he has ascended. Well, he knows that his, his hour to depart out of this world has come. And this is a great lesson for his disciples and any of us who consider ourselves his disciples to learn. There are great truths here in this thing that will, that will just bring us so much closer to Christ. So many intimate things that we'll look at here. So number one, he knows what time it is on his clock. That's number one. Number two, here it is. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, having loved, thats I have the word in the Greek text highlighted in red, agapesis. Now, that's in the aorist active, and here's why that's important. It is, it is something that has effectively been established that never stops. Aorist, active. Christ has long since established his love for whom? For his own. Someday we need to do a, a, a realistic study on what the Bible says about the love of God. So many people have a misconception about the love of God. What does it say here? Having loved who? His own. This is a love that is an effective love that has already been well established before this occurrence. And in the active, it is a love that never stops. All right. So then the second reason Christ will wash their feet is to demonstrate how much he loves his own. Now think about what's about to happen and we'll put all of this together as we go along. Number three, during supper, the devil already having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, that he should betray him. Number three, Jesus was always keenly aware of the powers of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, the evil spiritual forces that exist. The only thing 
in, in philosophy and in Christian apologetics as well, and I've mentioned this before, you'll study a thing called conceptual polarity. You can say kingdom of darkness, but you don't know what that means unless you understand what light is. And you can't understand light unless you understand darkness. That's conceptual polarity. We live, mankind has lived since the fall of man, has lived in an existence of conceptual polarity. There was, there was no evil until the tempter and then the woman and then the man disobeyed God. And it brought down the judgment upon Adam and the race of Adam. Adama, that mankind is a good, upon mankind. So all the descendants, we inherit this thing all the way through. And the Bible doesn't hide the fact that in the course of history, there is good and there is evil. And the only way that the good can emerge is by the power of God because the evil is already there. If we are thoughtful students of the word, if we are thoughtful disciples of Christ, we are continually and constantly aware of the powers of darkness. When we have children, we can begin to see it very early working on our children. When we have grandchildren, we can begin to see it work very early on our grandchildren. We need the Spirit of God to fill us so that we can, with the Word of God and the help of the Holy Spirit, properly discipline our children and instruct our children because the Word of God is so powerful and it needs to start right at the outset in teaching children about evil because evil is so natural to man. It is so natural. Christ, sinless son of God, was keenly aware, obviously, of the kingdom of darkness, the spiritual evil forces that exist. And of course, he was... He and his disciples constantly were the attention of hell itself. Now, that evil has already invaded the 12. Already done it. The devil already having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot. That's a powerful statement. The devil put something into the heart of Judas how can we know that we are being oppressed by Satan unless we know the word of God? You won't recognize it. As a matter of fact, it'll sound very attractive. This whole thing sounded very attractive to Judas. It was going to enrich him to a degree. And I suppose in other ways, he thought he was going to help the whole thing out by betraying Christ. Now, in, in this sense, he was wide open. There was, there was a wide open heart there because Judas Iscariot 
was not one of the 12. Christ, we saw it earlier in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I chose you 12 and one of you is a devil. Boy, that's something, isn't it? To be keenly aware in your home, in your life, in your daily affairs, to be keenly aware of the evil forces, the spiritual darkness, the powers of darkness that exist in this world. In my life, I don't know, and just in these last years, for some reason, it just seems like the, the existence and the attack of these evil forces, all of those things have increased. Probably because we are getting close to the end of the age. One thing, however, that is very important in the life of a disciple is to be aware of evil forces, spiritually evil forces, the kingdom of darkness that is so strong. We live in a world where it's, it's easier and easier to see how the things that have so much influence over the human race Okay, what? Schools, academia, government, uh, the, the media, social media, all of these things. And they all, have you noticed? They all come into agreement in these last days of extolling evil things. And if someone tries to present in conceptual polarity, if you will, if someone tries to present the other side, the biblical side, it's nixed. The world won't let you do it. It's a divinely powerful thing. It is a thing that has to be of God for the world to have revealed to it the existence of spiritual darkness. This is not something that you can just bring up on your own because you're born in that spiritual darkness. It's part of our fallen nature. That's why we have to be Born again from above. And as, as we go along in the word of God, the more offensive the world system is. And the more we realize how difficult the battle is and we cannot fight the battle apart from the power of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Christ is aware of the powers of darkness. Now, the others, the others didn't know. Little things that Judas did. We saw it earlier in John when he objected to the anointing of the feet of Christ with the expensive ointment, the perfume. He was the treasurer and the Bible said that he was a thief. You remember that? The other disciples didn't really know that. They were they were blind, unfortunately, to the presence of spiritual evil that was there in their little group, in the, in the 12. They were blind to the truth that one of them would betray Christ. The other gospel accounts tell us. And Christ says, one of you will betray me tonight. Oh, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Nobody really thought until he was revealed and ran out. So Jesus was always, is always, keenly aware of the presence of spiritual evil 
in the world and even within the group of his own. Spiritual evil. That's why we have to stay close to Christ and his word. These things to our human nature can sometimes sound so good and so inviting until we recognize how they are opposite to the word of God itself. So the third reason is that Christ is aware of the spiritual forces of darkness. The fourth thing, Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands. The fourth, the fourth thing is this, Jesus knew that he was in control of the events. He's not, he's not going to go to the cross kicking and screaming. He's not going to be surprised when they come to arrest him as it is the time of the Passover, the final Passover really. He's not surprised he even says, I came into the world for this hour. This is why I came. He's in control of the events. And so he knows this. Therefore, he must do what he does as an example to his disciples. So that they will understand he is in control. Though here, initially, it will be difficult for them to understand. The fifth thing. He came forth from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper and laid aside his garments. And having taken a towel, he girded himself. The only thing Christ had on here now is the loincloth. That's all he had on. It was what a slave would wear when he would perform the task of washing the feet of those who came into the household of the master. He had nothing else on. He didn't want to soil his outer garments, didn't want to get them wet or anything like that. He had on only his loincloth. He laid his garments aside and he does exactly what the one who would wash feet would do he takes a towel and he wraps it around himself because of what he's about to do. Now, here's the point. Fifth reason that Jesus will wash his disciples' feet is because he knows exactly who he is. He's not struggling. <laughs> he's not struggling with his identity. Oh, if you have read the things that so-called theologians have put out through the years, even through the centuries, that Christ was always struggling with himself and all this, that's a bunch of bull. Listen, Christ always knew who he was. He knew that he had come from the Father. He knew he was going back to the Father. He knew he was in control of the events. And it's, it's, it's absolutely perfect for him to do whatever he wants to do. In this case, show himself as a slave, as a servant to his own. He had no doubt that he's God the Son. He is the presence of God 
in the world. He doesn't doubt that at all. He knows from whence he came and to where he will return. He knows all this. And so knowing who he is, he has no problem laying aside his garments, but for the loincloth and wrapping the towel around himself, preparing to wash their feet. Sixth reason. After that, he poured into the basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. There is an important part of the story in Luke 22 that leads us into the reason behind all of this. In Luke 22, they came into the room and they were going to enjoy the Passover with the master. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. He had entered in the city to all of the accolades on Palm Sunday. All these things were happening. And so the disciples, Luke tells us, were arguing about who was going to be number one in the kingdom after Christ. I'm going to have a higher position than you because look at me. I'm this and that. No, you're not going to be above me in the kingdom. I will. Now, here are all these guys arguing about how great they are and how great they're going to be because they think, <laughs> they think still that the kingdom is just about to be established. And the one who is the absolute sovereign in the kingdom, the king of kings, the master, God the son, while they're arguing over who is the greatest, were, were even, they were just totally oblivious of what they were called to do in the first place, which is to serve. In every gathering in that culture, the feet were washed before they could come in. They're arguing, oh, I'm the best, I'm the best. They were going to head to the table with dirty feet. I'm the best. No, 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 you're not going to be ahead of me. I've already, I've already scoped out what I want to do in the kingdom. You know, okay. With all of that talk, Luke 22, Christ begins to disrobe himself down to his loincloth. Quietly puts the towel around himself, fills the pot with water, and kneels down. God in heaven, come to earth, kneels down and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. The sixth reason he does this is because they're going to have to understand that greatness in the kingdom is measured by service and meekness, not by man-made definitions of greatness. Good heavens, this is God. John has revealed to us earlier in chapter one that he's the creator of everything. He made everything. He has become a part of his time-space continuum 
to offer himself for his own. That God's elect would be redeemed from the fall. This very one quietly, while they're arguing over greatness, in the loincloth like a slave, with a towel around his waist, kneels down, begins to wash their feet. James, would you come here, please? Sit here. And they begin to kind of quiet down a little. What's he doing? Lays his garments aside, puts the, puts the, he girds his loins with the towel. He kneels at the feet of his disciples. But even worse than that, washes their feet. There would have been silence. No one would say a thing. Thank you. Thank you, James. Thank you. Thomas, would you come over here, please? One after the other, washing their feet, serving his own. Having loved his own, he loved them to the very end, serving them. The next one would come. He would wash their feet. So then, old Peter, he does three things and he teaches us as well. Number one, he then comes to Simon Peter who says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? That's kind of dumb. He was washing his feet. That's called a rhetorical question, I guess. Jesus answered and said to him, what I do now, you do not presently know, but you will know after these things. Okay, Peter, number one, reveals his spiritual ignorance. Having watched Christ tirelessly from sunup to sundown heal the people, Luke says he healed them all. He never turned anybody away. Fed them, had compassion for those. He said, we got to feed these people. Miraculously fed them. All that he had done, the great God of heaven incarnate in Christ, now kneeling at the feet of those who were his own. How would you feel if somehow you could be in a room where God himself comes in and washes your feet. How would you feel? Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter doesn't understand. He's ignorant. That's number one. Number two, Peter becomes self-assertive. Well, that's always a dumb thing to do in the presence of Christ. Peter said to him, no, you shall never wash my feet. He already was. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. Self-assertive. You'd better be humble in the presence of God and listen to what he has to say. 
and wait for his guidance and the unction of the Holy Spirit, never be self-assertive in the things of God. So now, number three, Peter thought, Peter thought he could lose Jesus. Look at this. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Wash me all over. I don't know. He thought he could lose Jesus. It's always I want to be gentle and yet firm at the same time. You cannot be saved twice. Christ only died once for your sin. The Bible says if it was, if it was necessary for you to be saved again, having been saved and then thinking you'd been lost, then Christ would have to come and do it all over again. You're not going to do that. Peter thought he could lose Jesus. What kind of God do you serve? He did, you didn't choose him in the first place. He chose you. And he doesn't play games. Our Lord responded in a twofold fashion when Peter expressed that he thought he could lose Jesus. The first response is theological. Jesus said to him, the one having been bathed only needs to wash his feet. But he's completely clean. And you are all clean, speaking to the 12, except one of you, not all of you, just one of you is not clean. For he knew the one who was betraying him. Because of this, he said, not all of you are clean. So it's impossible to think that Judas, Judas was there and then he lost it. No, he never had it. It's very clear in the scriptures. Peter, on the other hand, is taught what we should all understand. I have already washed you. Now your feet get dirty. Walking through this world will soil your feet. Don't matter, doesn't matter who you are. I don't care who you are. If you're the kind of disciple of Christ that you should be, then every day you reflect on the day that's past and recognized the way you've soiled your feet, the thoughts you've had, the things you've said, the things you did, whatever. It's just the way it is in this world. There was no way to come through the front door without soiled feet. We've been washed in the water of the word. We've been regenerated, if you want to say that. Titus teaches us that. We've been completely cleaned. But in this world, our feet get a little dirty from time to time. 1 John 1, 9, here's, here's, here's the great application. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin 
and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is nothing by my power that saves me or keeps me saved. Nothing. And I'll tell you this, if you are a born again, bought by the blood, spirit, baptized Christian, you will know it when your feet get dirty. You'll know it. And the first thing you need is for the master, the sovereign of the universe to come into that room and kneel down and wash your feet. Nobody else in that room could wash those feet but Jesus. You're completely clean. But the only thing you need is for your feet to be washed. That's all you need. Confess our sin. Confess. Homo legeo. Homo means the same. Legeo means to say or to speak. When we confess our sin, we say the same thing about our sin that God says. We speak the same thing about sin that God says. It's in the word. We just read it in the word and we say, it's me. Oh, I'm a sinner. We have this promise. It's so simple. Confess your sin. He will forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Your feet are clean. He does it. He does it. You don't have to be saved all over again. People, people can collapse into grievous sin. I understand that. David did. Abram did. Peter did. And I could go on and on. But they confessed their sin and the sovereign master washed their feet. What a great lesson that we have that Christ is the power of our salvation, not us. Christ. Now, the first was theological, but the second is practical. So when he had washed their feet, and took his garments, put his garments back on. And having reclined again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly you say I am. Now, now remember these guys were just fussing with each other, probably all, all, almost to a fist fight about who's going to, no, I'm the greatest. No, you're not. Can you, boy, what a way. Can you see? Now, if I have washed your feet, the Lord and the teacher, you ought also wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that as I did to you, you also should do. Now, there are wonderful brethren who, whenever they come together for communion, first have a foot washing service. I don't condemn that. But th this is not the overall meaning. This is not what Jesus said. When you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. No, no, it's the cup and the bread. Jesus, what does he say here? He says, I gave you 
an example. And we are not to overlord one another. We're not to walk into the room claiming to be greater than the other ones. Thinking that we're more deserving of a higher office or whatever in the church than anyone else. No, no, no. We're to follow the example of Christ and take the position of a servant, a slave, to serve other people. To help people when they need food. To read books or the Bible to the elderly. To give the brother or sister a ride to where they need to go. How many ways can you, whoever you are, take the position of a slave and do for the brother or sister in Christ what's needed in their lives? This is how the church is strong. This is how the church makes a difference. That we're meek and we're humble. We're not braggadocious and we don't claim greatness. As the Lord sees fit, he will bestow upon us whatever he wants to bestow upon us. But our example is to serve others as a servant as a slave in meeting the great need that exists. The great need here in the example is the need for feet to be washed before they would recline at the table. And so Christ concludes, truly, truly, I say to you, as a servant, it should say as a servant, is not, there's no definite article, so as a servant, is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one having sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. There is a blessing in service. There is a blessing from God in humility and meekness. To always follow the example of Jesus and assume the position of a slave. To do what is needed for the brothers and the sisters in Christ. Our first obligation is to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Very clear in the New Testament. Our first efforts and our first resources should always go to helping one another. And Christ gives us this example and says then to us, you are never greater than your master. You are not greater than the one who has sent you. If you understand this, 
and then execute these things, you're blessed. The blessing of servanthood. The master who serves. Would you bow your heads and, and close your eyes? And know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he came into this world to save sinners. Oh, to admit that we're a sinner, to believe in Jesus, to call on him for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Perhaps God is drawing you to his son Christ today. If he is, you will know it. Maybe you're here and as a believer, God leads you to come and be a part of this congregation. Here's how we handle our invitation. As you exit after our benediction in just a moment, as you exit, just across the hall, a couple of rooms with deacons and their wives, and they are there to receive you, to pray with you, to help you, to help you in salvation, to understand, to know, to help you with church membership. We take care of all the details. Go in there and let them speak with you and, and pray with you. If God is opening your heart up to this invitation. Now prayerfully would you stand all over this room and we'll be dismissed in prayer.